city limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, City Limits, we're back on air and... uh, I hope we're back on air because we're working out of two studios today with protocols here in 3CR. We're actually in the studio, though, which is great news. Yes. And uh, I hope no one says we're live to air because you never are actually dead to air unless you've got <laughs> dead air. Uh, <laughs> so don't, don't, count, don't carry cadavers into studios to broadcast. <laughs> but um, we, um, we're back and uh, we've got Meg Kimber over there in the studio. Good morning. Got uh, Zeb Peak in the other studio. We're working out of two studios. Karina's pressing the buttons. I'm Kevin Healy, and uh, City Limits is today. It's our energy day, and we're going to be talking to Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, their anti uranium campaigner, around issues to do with uranium and also to do with mining generally and the resource industry and some of the affairs that are current events taking place. Uh, at the moment, uh, Meg, anything you wanted to uh, have a go? Oh, hang on, we better do the, the ritual first. We haven't for ages now. Pour the tea in the studio. Here we That's go. That's good. You pour the tea, and I'll quickly look up some news on the internet on my phone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon Zeb will have something. What do you? What have you brought in today, Zeb? Well, I thought um, your suggestion uh, a couple of days ago about the Facebook news ban. Oh yeah, such an interesting topic. Of oh. course, now um, Facebook is has gone back on that and is saying that they won't ban news on Facebook anymore. But yeah. it's still a very interesting um, turn of events. It is indeed. Yeah, that's right. I forgot that I had sent that email around for those of us within the show who do have email. Um, and I'm sure, Kevin, you'll have a, a comment on this. Um, the government putting through this legislation to try to get more money for Rupert Murdoch um, through the Google and Facebook Avenues. Yes, um, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, who yeah. do we barrack for? You've got you've got yeah. Mark Zuckerberg mm. on one side and Rupert Murdoch on the other. It's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I actually a, went Team Zook this time because uh, I was pretty annoyed about the legislation. Um, yeah, making a way to get more profit for Murdoch and and not the ABC <laughs> and not SBS. Mm, yeah. So. yeah, but it really puts both the government and Facebook in a bad light, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, there have been a number of anomalies, of course, in terms of government handouts of money and who doesn't get it and who does, like mm-hmm. universities that employ many more people a lot of industry got no money during um, work, whatever it's called. Work keeper. Uh, work job keeper, keeper, job keeper. Yep. And uh, yet other places that uh, are showing massive profits were handed, handed money, mm-hmm. which is all very interesting, including, I suppose, Crown. We might come around to Crown shortly, but a couple of items that um, go to issues we discussed last year, the AGL inquiry into, into the Crib Point uh, mm. natural gas or liquefied natural gas, which would be a, an, ecolo- an ecological and 
environmental disaster. Interestingly enough, over the break, the Liberal Party, because the local member Hunt has to, has to I mean, the same group who say we need gas and we need a gas-led recovery, in his own seat, of course, he opposes something <laughs> for purely personal political reasons, about, mm. like saving his seat. Mm. Uh, but the Liberal Party came out and, and supported him, and so you've got the Liberal Party coming out and supporting him on one gas project when, in fact, they want to have the whole country running riot. But that, mm. the, the minister is supposed to give a, re, a re response to that because the inquiry w report will go to the minister about, about now, I think, and March 25 is the date scheduled for the minister to announce whether it's going to be approved or not. But mm. the, the overwhelming evidence was against it, of course, so we'll, we'll wait and see. There was also an article actually in the paper over the break about the one we also interviewed a woman from Gippsland about that uh, mineral sands from down there which could damage Melbourne's, Melbourne's vegetable and Melbourne's uh, food area mm. and also damage the water going into Lakes Entrance and the whole fishing industry and local water supplies. And there was a very good article surprisingly in the Herald Sun which was very sympathetic to the local protesters and mm. talked about an organic farm being nearby which could be damaged and yeah, wow. and that inquiry is going on. In fact, it's around about now, but that, well, I think it was the 15th of Feb mm. that, that that environment effect hearing is, is starting up. So, well, And speaking yeah. of the Gippsland area, we had a, a um, an activist from the East Gippsland area for the Save Eugenana. Oh, gosh, have I got that right? Erinandra. Um so and an update on that is that he has been taken down and, and we speculated that had happened last week, but we can confirm that has. But there is another tree sitter in place. So the um, the blockade continues. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, just as an aside to that, and by the by, during the break again a couple of weeks ago, uh, the... <laughs> The court ruled against uh, Bob Brown in terms of yeah. the the logging industry in Tasmania, saying mm. on the grounds that the the agreement was proper and legal, well, and uh, that's therefore what happens they, when they can go on destroying the forest, presumably. Well, that's what happens when a government-owned body is regulated by itself. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they, of course, they're compliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, we won a couple of cases going back years proving the government hadn't gone through its own environmental processes. We actually, my one even not guilty actually, was because yeah. uh, we proved the government hadn't gone through the environmental processes for the, for the work we were blocking. Oh. And a couple of other groups did the same thing. But in each case, the government, government went back next day and made itself legal oh. retrospectively. So <laughs> it didn't really matter. And it was mainly in favour, of course, of private companies. Uh, interestingly enough, also, the same day in the Financial Review that had the story that says inquiry slows AGL and LNG import race and talks about, and the, the, of course the thrust of the of financial review angle is that we really need to import all this gas at lower prices, etc. But the very same day, a couple of pages later, a headline in the same paper, Australia set for new LNG export records. So we're mm -hmm. exporting record amounts and we need to import it. There seems to be something wrong with the, with the consistency of the system there a little bit, <laughs> I would have thought. Yeah, that's pretty odd. Um, I also saw an article, though, that was actually saying that Australia's gas networks were looking, or at least some of them, were looking to go green with hydrogen. I don't know if you two know more about that, but apparently you can add... 10% hydrogen into the existing gas network and that is supposed to be cleaner than um, 
than other options. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we've had some yeah. people talking about hydrogen before on the show. Yeah, we? I'm going yeah. to. In fact, I might raise it even with um, with Dave later in the program as mm. well. But yeah, that's right. They and in fact. Um, they're talking you know, there's green hydrogen and non green hydrogen. It depends right. what you what you use to get it, of course. Mm. But, uh, it's quite complicated. It's, yeah, it is. But it's um yeah, we'll see what happens anyway. Um another one actually there's a a mob called Freedom Foods that's been in the news because there was a real problem with their accounting and they're in financial trouble. Uh and there's a lot of activity taking place. I just raised that because before er, late last year again we talked about the Perich brothers getting that windfall over the land the government bought. They paid, you know, thirty million for land worth one million or whatever, and then valued it at nine hundred or something to give mm. it back to them. Mm. Um, now, Freedom Foods is actually run by that family. They just sort of mentioned that because they're in some financial strife and there's mm. a lot of things going on there. But just uh, just as a by the by, the Perich family is actually in, involved with that and. Uh, there we are. Uh, look, I, I do want to raise the Crown one because um, the government finally has been forced into even a royal commission, for God's sake. It set up an inquiry originally after the damning findings in New South Wales, which were quite predictable. Mm. But, of course, the New South Wales findings were based solely on the Victorian casino and the Western Australian casino run by Crown because there's no Crown casino at, currently in New South Wales. And mm. that's an interesting item in itself because they're now saying, the government's now saying, well, we could be up for liabilities because if we change the, the the contract in some form, we we could be liable to give them millions of dollars in compensation. People are saying, of course, well, if they're found to be criminal, well, you know, where's that? Mm. the whole thing up but if also only, if only they stopped giving money to corporations just because they did criminal activities well yes and, and when and when <laughs> and of course jeff kennett's come out attacking the government for being too light on them etc yet it was jeff kennett who gave them the license in the first place and in that license they've got a they're guaranteed no competition in victoria for i think it was 50 years or whatever they got right up to you know oodles <laughs> wow. of time in which competition was actually barred so it's like giving a person a a, a permit to run their own private mint. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New South Wales, the other mob, Star, I think they're called, um, they they had the same contract, the same conditions that they no competition to come in, and yet somehow Packers managed to wheedle his way in, and and hopefully open. He, he might not be able to open a second uh, casino in Sydney. Mm. But I, I raise this for two reasons. One. Going back in history, before Kennett, the previous government, and it was under Joan Kerner as Premier, there was a, a bloke, uh, an ALP um, uh, bloke called Xavier Connor, who was a, a senior counsel and a, and a Supreme Court judge. And after he retired from the court, he was appointed by the government to investigate whether Victoria should or should not have a casino. And his report back then was that we should definitely not have a casino because, and his reasons were, casinos attract criminal elements and they bring criminality into into society. Now, the very things that are being raised now are things he raised then to say, well, we shouldn't have it. But then along came Kennett and the rest is history. Mm. And so so a lot of punters, unfortunately. Mm. But the... the fact is, in this case now, we, it's, we're not saying it's alleged criminal activity. What the New South Wales inquiry has found, what there is definitely criminal activity taking place, whether they know they're money laundering or not. And I think they, I think it's fair to say they, they almost certainly did. But you know, the, whether 
But beside the point, it's all there, and so I'm not even sure why we even need a, a royal commission because well, it's been done. <clears throat> Given it was into Victoria anyway, yeah. all the findings there are about what they're going to find, hopefully, in a royal commission here. Yeah. The other point, though, is that royal commissions, which people keep calling out for and everything, are incredibly expensive to run. Mm-hmm. You've got the cost of running a, of the lawyers. You've got the cost of setting the whole thing up, the... the, the um, the machinery that goes around it, the organisation around it, and you've got very, you know, usually a couple of SCs or QCs as senior as councils assisting. They've got a couple of juniors for them. The the costs are just astronomical. Now, in this case, given it's been brought on because of Crown's illegality, in fact, and activities, I can't see why Crown shouldn't be forced to meet the entire cost of the Royal Commission because mm. without that, it's going to cost the state government millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm. And I would have thought there's a, there's a proper case here for Crown to meet not only its own legal expenses, which would, I suspect, be very high, mm. but also the whole cost of the Commission, mm. given the Commission has been caused by its own malfeasance, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, com- and unfortunately, a lot of the commissions, um, you know, it takes such a long time to get the recommendations and then they come out and then they sort of are ignored usually. Yeah. So, yes, that's right. um, some of them, and that's, that's assuming that the recommendations are even, you know, on target for the, the, the needs and the requirements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Another um, energy-related article I saw was from Renew Economy. Coal generators find after failing to match big batteries and putting grid at risk. Hmm. So apparently in Queensland, the owner of um, two Queensland coal generators was fined um, for failing to deliver the services that they promised and putting um, a lot of Queensland at risk of like a blackout. Um hmm. And, yeah, I thought that was interesting because a while back we had um, blackouts in South Australia blamed on uh, renewables and that has also happened with the recent um, catastrophic blackouts in Texas uh, Mm. that people are um, kind of looking at, like, wind to to blame as um, the reason for the blackouts. But actually... Um, in this case, it was the coal generators that were um, really the most to blame. Yeah, that was astonishing, actually, that the, it was the coal and gas in, in Texas that packed up and the whole state was left in a, you know, in a massive freeze, of course, but mm. the whole state was left with no power. And then the power authorities running coal and gas attempted to blame renewables. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary, there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> How do they keep on managing to do that? <laughs> oh, easily. I'm easily. surprised that the Queensland government um, took that step because I've had um, maybe pigeonholed them as a bit of a coal-positive yeah. coal, uh, economy. Yeah, well, they're, they're an enigma, aren't they? they, they yeah. on, on, well, on one hand, they say they want to reach they want to reach zero emissions by whatever, yeah. and they're working to order. But at the same time, they're supporting coal mining in their state and, and Adani so a, and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's quite interesting. The, the Texas one though is interesting because, in fact, the problem emanates very much like in Victoria, where they 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 privatised the whole system back in about 1999, I think it was, Mm. um, promising, as usual, lower prices and everything else and greater efficiency. And, of course, because there's no overriding body even trying to implement any limited conditions on them, 
they've just let the whole system go to waste. They're not going to waste money yeah. building up. So there were none of the none of the um, protections that were needed to have in the system for when this sort of freeze occurred, mm, and yeah. that was the reason. So it, it goes back again to privatisation and the fact that they did nothing to maintain the system or to, to, yeah. make it, uh, to make it safe in these sort of situations. Yep. Yeah, it's always going back to privatisation. <laughs> it certainly is. Definitely on city limits. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another little point that's happened recently is job seeker has been raised, um, a whole $50 a fortnight, so we can all celebrate for that. We get an extra $3.57 um, cents a day yeah, well, if you're on JobSeeker. All, yeah. all those bloody doll budgets will be whooping it up today, dancing <laughs> in the streets. They're out there partying on, <laughs> popping the corks and the, oh having God. a wonderful time. You know, $3. <laughs> it's, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually on JobSeeker, even though I somehow – I technically have – five jobs but i also mm. am on job seeker mm. <laughs> so yeah i'll be buying an extra pencil or something <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, should yeah. be buying a newspaper to look up the job ads and get yourself a job that's the point <laughs> that you need uh yeah what else have we got in the news? We've got well, as the the woman Herdiger, her name is, who's the head of uh, who was the head of the tennis the other night. She made the speech after both the finals and got booed when she mentioned um, vaccination. Unfortunately, which is a bit ordinary the other night. Oh, mm. but uh, but she sort of came across as talk, talking about uh, everyone helping everyone and sounding sounding like a person of of real sensitivity and and. Uh, now, I, I remind people, she actually is the woman who was put in charge of Virgin Airlines when the private company took it over quite mm. recently uh. Uh, against the wishes of the union. And, and, they were, and mm. in fact, the, the speculation is she was put there to crush the workers. And since then, they've offered workers a contract which, goes, which gives them no wage rises and a wage freeze for many years. And surprisingly, many of the workers last week voted against it. Uh, but she says they're not going to change their tack, uh, but they do want to keep the team going and all that sort of thing. But I just remind people that, that woman is the one who uh, actually runs Virgin Airlines these days. Oh, boy. Well, I've got a bit of a cough coming. I'm going to go outside I'm and gonna, cough and refill I'm gonna the pot of tea. I'm going to turn off Kevin's microphone then. And I, and, well, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank all of our subscribers who subscribed during our subscriber drive. Um, Karina and I last week talked about how crucial it is um, that we have the support of our listeners and our subscribers. And um, myself as a complete community radio nerd, um, I'm not going to tell you how many um, stations I subscribe to, but um, <laughs> I know, I know uh, it's been a really tough year for a lot of people. We, we really, really appreciate your support. It, it's, it is how um, 3CR runs all throughout the year is uh, from the money from the subscriber drive. And um, it's not too late to subscribe if you haven't. Um, and you can pop online to 3cr.org.au to um, update your subscription. And there's, of course, like concession options and, um, you know, options depending on how much you're working, whether you're a band, how, how involved you are. So just really, really encourage that. I'm assuming um, Zeb and Karina are both subscribed and all up to date. Yep. 
I think. Actually, <laughs> I should probably check. <laughs> and I guess Karina's not going to talk. She's back in the panel for the first time in many. She's waving at me. <laughs> <laughs> Zeb, did you have any other news? Um, um, not any others, but um, talking about mm. radio and the media, it does, does take us back a little bit to that Facebook news yeah. ban um, because, of course, um, even even with our, you know, um, annoyance at the government trying to trying to just um, give advantages to News Corp and and such like, um, Facebook banning the news did affect um, small news outlets right. um, worse and and community news outlets that rely on um, Facebook to to sort of garner traffic mm. um, because and, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say the unions also were um, uh, like taken off Facebook as well, so they're not really a news outlet. But yeah, interesting who was who was filtered out in that process. Yeah, who was affected? Mm. Yeah, lots of um, sort of advocacy pages and community pages that um, rely a lot on a sort of commentary on the latest news also got taken down. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's also really interesting just from the fact of you know. Um, how do we try and regulate these giant corporations that like multinational social media corporations because they are another sort of corporate power that um, we're facing and um, it is a really tricky question with all of those um, both like the jurisdictional boundaries and Mm. the problems that um, the government just (laughs) experienced Mm. with trying to regulate them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and we really don't seem to have a good track record of attempting to regulate Facebook. Um, with our last attempt of the, I don't know if you remember the sharing of abhorrent, violent material mm. um, act that was, um, you know, it was in response to the Christchurch attacks mm. um, and um, what was sort of shared on social media after that. Um, which was, of course, um, awful. But the attempt of the government to to regulate mm. that kind of went too far in the other direction. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be tricky to to see how we can mm. um, to walk the line, I suppose, between um, not just benefiting giant um, right. traditional media, mm. but also not benefiting Facebook. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Because the you know, on the face of it, you think, oh, okay, yeah, they want you know to um, you know hold Facebook to account. So on the on the first hand, you think, oh, that sounds good, and then you look at it and you see that Murdoch and Google made a like gazillion dollar deal <laughs> yeah. to display his news, and then you think, oh, that's okay, that's what's the outcome of this legislation that's like put forward as if it's this wonderful sort of thing, mm. keeping um, social media, huge, powerful companies that do determine how we consume a lot of the information, such of a huge amount of the information yeah. we consume online comes through Google or Facebook yeah. or Twitter. But um, really, if we wanted to limit their power, we would be trying to stop their like um, anti-competitive behavior of making yeah. deals with other markets so we mm. kind of like wouldn't want them to mm. be making big it, deals with exactly news. and yeah. then that 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 being the outcome hard not to feel a bit cynical about this legislation <laughs> yeah difficult yeah it's a world unto themselves of course but, uh that's, mm. that's how they operate, and uh, I read an article recently where they sort of they re- almost regard themselves as a country separate from other countries. So they, well, they'd have the like gross national product of 
more than bigger than a lot of countries in the world, wouldn't they? Mm. Like oh, the yes. money yes. coming in and out, yeah. and the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yes, and so when it's them versus Rupert, of course, the other factor is that the yeah you know, the argument from the other end from Rupert and uh, our government is that journalists are being cheated because they're, they're not being paid for their stories properly. Mm. Et now, I'm, given the deals have been done with the proprietors of these papers, with Channel 9, which runs the, the, the old Fairfax empire, and with Kerry State, um, Kerry, what's his name, is the bloke in, in Western Australia who runs the show over there, um, and Kerry Stokes, mm. and, um, and Rupert himself, uh, I wonder how much of that money is going to flow down to the journalists who write the stories. Exactly. I, I suspect very little indeed. Yeah, and I, the other sort of thing that popped up that week, I think I saw it in the Finn Review, which, you know, this is what has happened with you being away, Kevin, is I'm actually looking at these newspapers that I never normally look at. I'm, really, I'm going to take that with you after the show. But um, they did have a thing in the Finn about somebody... Um, Basically saying that AAP was oh God, I can't remember the word, doomed, but doomed, yeah. yeah. Um, which I, I thought you might have mm. a comment on as someone who's worked in the field for a long time. And the AAP, of course, is the Australian Associated Press, which um, supports basically a lot of community newspapers to or smaller local newspapers, not community. Yeah, well, papers. They, they use it as a service, as a news service. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they would they were paying it, and of course, it was sold to. Channel Nine or whoever. I think I it was Nine. Bought it. Well, someone yeah. well, someone yeah. got it, and uh, I think they re- they got it. And one of the reasons was to pack it up. I suspect. So that's, they're running you know, it into the yeah, ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, right. And News Corp has, has pulled out of uh, the AAP last year, right? I can't remember um, how. I thought yeah, the AAP was they, independent, and then mm, okay. was sold to. Yeah, yeah I can't remember. Well, I remember what it, when, it, when it happened, but I can't remember the details now. It was about a year ago. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, certainly the the whole thrust at the time was for AAP to be wiped out. Effectively, that was. And it seems to be going it, that yeah. way. Yeah. 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 We better get on to Dave Sweeney. Yeah, we'll go to a break, and then we'll be back with Dave. This is a public service announcement. With guitar!
Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Okay, we're back on City Limits. And uh, don't forget that you can actually podcast this show and you can listen to it um, online streaming at 3cr.org.au. You can find out more information at 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. And today we're joined by Dave Sweeney. Yeah, and that song, of course, talked about the right to free speech. And uh, I think 3CR is one of the few places where you get genuine free speech, including people like Dave Sweeney able to talk about the issues they want to talk about. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. That's such a nice uh, introduction and it's actually ticked a bit of a wish list thing you know to appear on the same bill as the clash oh well your day's made you can you can sign off now it's okay uh dave there's a bit happening in the nuclear area um I noticed, um, and we talked earlier about the, the big freeze in Texas and the impact of privatisation of the system over there on what happened. But what are the what are the, but nuclear is involved in the Texas mix of of, of energy. Uh, what's the what effect would the big freeze have on on nuclear power plants in this situation? Look, that is an extremely good question. It's one that I've got a little note to find out what's going on in Texas. Um, I'm not 100% sure the state of Texas nuclear facilities. What I have seen and what drew my attention to it, um, Kevin, was that obviously, you know, when uh, there's such massive disruption of infrastructure and critical infrastructure, you know, it's, it's interesting if you work in that field to see. And I've also noticed that there's been this sort of push. You might have seen there was a comment piece in The Australian about the lesson of the Texas cold snap is that we need nuclear power. Mm. Um, and so I was, I was looking... What The bit that I have seen is that um, predominantly it was um, gas plants that were most affected um, uh, by... And, and that predominantly came offline in Texas... Um, I'm not sure what the situation was with the with the nuclear plants, but overwhelmingly, the loss of power capacity was due to gas production. Um, the other thing that's really um, significant in that is that you know a lot of energy politics, and we see it routinely in Australia. The decisions are not so much technical or good policy decisions; it's it's very wrapped up in ideology and vested power interests and the like, and that's not different in the states too. And my understanding is that Texas has been had um, a, a multi-political term almost phobia about being dependent or um, able to be dictated to by um, federal energy utilities and providers and regulators. And so Texas has kept itself out of the national energy grid and Texas powers Texas so that Washington can't tell us what to do. Mm. And as a result of that, neighbouring states, which did not suffer those power losses, were not in any position, because of just the, the reality of the grid, were not in any position to siphon power to Texas. Mm. So their desire to isolate and be Lone Star, putting the loan into Lone Star, um, when it came to energy, has really seen them isolated and, and powerless. Um, so I think I'm keen to see and hear more and tease out more of those lessons, but there are some real lessons there. The take-home is that um, it was fossil fuel that under-delivered and the lack of integration into the wider system 
made them much more vulnerable. They're two quick lessons from Texas. Yeah. And back home, of course, this bill that Barnacle is, or Barnick Barnaby is uh, throwing up, uh, saying he wants coal included. That's been the that's been the thrust of the of the news reports. He wants coal included in funding by renewable energy authorities. But he's also included in his bill nuclear. He says the they, he wants the renewable energy funds also to fund nuclear energy in Australia. Hmm. It's it's quite extraordinary. Like you know, we've got the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, a, a world leading. Like a lot of countries look at the the Clean Energy Finance Corporation as a model of how you finance the transition to, from dirty to clean energy. And instead of celebrating it and saying, "Hey, look at us," and and you know, supercharging it, um, they are trying the death of a thousand cuts. And and this is two hundred and fifty cuts in one. This one, like to turn a clean energy financing um, authority and utility into financing um, coal, into financing expanded uh, coal and fossil um, fuel production and into um, developing domestic nuclear power is just just so patently absurd, such the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Barnaby Joyce, like, you know, not to get too personal, but the name is so Dickensian. It's like a Dickensian character. <laughs> um, and, and this is a Dickensian approach. This is a dark, satanic mills of energy. It's, it's looking backwards. It's looking back to some Victorian age of centralised, dirty and, um, and highly polluting and risky power, as opposed to what the remit of this very effective and important... Um, uh, corporation is, which is to, you know, fast track us to a, a very deliverable, very possible clean energy future. Mm. Yeah, it's happening everywhere. Well, it's not happening everywhere. Perhaps it's happening only in a couple of places, but also in Poland, their energy minister who's saying we need to get off coal because it's very been very coal reliant for a long, long time. And to meet EU standards, He's saying, again, they can't do that unless they nu- they use nuclear and gas, he's saying. But again, Poland is saying it needs nuclear to get out of the mess. Mm. Well, you know, look, that in one sense I fully understand that. When I wore a younger cut of clothes, Kevin and, <laughs> and, and Megan said, many, many years ago, in the, in the tail end of the 1980s, um, I was uh, in Poland... Um, and and spent a bit of time there, and I, I met with a whole range of Polish environmentalists and ecologists and, and 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 sort of progressive people. And one of the places we looked at at the time was a industrial zone near down near Krakow, and it was um it was um called Nova Huta. It was a big steelworks, and it was like that sort of Stalinist dream of the five-year plan writ large. And the place was extraordinary and deeply depressing and heavily impacted and um, heavily contaminated. Um, and the coal, the presence of coal, and Poland's got really low-grade coal. It's got brown coal, lignite. It burns like a really dirty coal. Not that coal's clean, but like we all know, black coal, metallurgical coal is less dirty than low-grade um, brown and, or lignite. And, coal, and Poland burn really low-grade coal, so its impacts... Um, were really bad. So mm-hmm. I could see why people want to move away from that. Um, I, I really can, and, like, fast-track that and do that. But, you know, look, to jump into, you know, from the coal-powered fire into the nuclear frying pan, it's mm-hmm. so not the answer. It, it fits with, um, you know, Poland has a very... Uh, it, it, the Polish political structure has, for many years, not been kind 
to the Polish people, whether it was the, the communist state or the, the now the more um, strange mix between buccaneer capitalism and, and, and the most arch-Catholic conservatism smashed mm. together the former government. Um, and if you look like Poland was one of the first countries, Australia and Poland were the first countries to wave, you know, raise the flag alongside the US uh, um, in the most, you know, sort of recent and continuing Gulf War and Middle East war debacle. Um, and, and sometimes Poland, with its um, sort of understandable but sort of vitriolic um, positioning around Russia, mm-hmm. is um, likes to have the capacity to cultivate favour in what it, in the hawkish West. And I see this as part of that geopolitics. They want to be energy independent. They want to be a player. They think nuclear will give them um, clean energy, which it won't. They think nuclear will give them access to weapons technology, which it could. Um, And they see it as ticking a few boxes. I think for most people, and particularly their European neighbours, they hope that this is a thought bubble um, and they would be deeply concerned. And I think we'd see significant sort of positioning and opposition if this started to get legs. Mm. Um, speaking of the sort of broader geopolitical situation, Dave, um, Iran was in the news recently um, relating to some uh, communications and, and, and negotiations with the United Nations nuclear watchdog. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, again, that's uh, uh, a sort of thawing of the ice mm. um, with Biden. Um, your listeners will remember and you'll well know that, um, uh, you know, uh, Former President Trump, nice to say former, made a, a really big chest-beating deal of ripping up the Iran nuclear deal, which he saw as um, um, the Obama administration's capitulation. Um, and the rest of the world um, saw it as a measured and sensible way to deal with a complex situation and to provide some certainty and to restrict... Uh, the, the very real potential for the proliferation of nuclear weapons and a, and a state that has nuclear civil technology becoming a breakout weapon state. And so let's bring them into the tent, whereas Trump's approach was to burn the tent and, um, and say that tents are for losers. Um, now, Biden's come back in, you know, with his big America's back, we're at the table, we'll show leadership. Um, look, there's lots of problems and constraints and, and, and contradictions with the Iran nuclear deal. You know, you, we will assure you that civil nuclear reactors and, and, and facilitate civil nuclear power development. You don't go down the military path and we'll have some check and balance to some degree to provide some certainty to the outside world that that's happening. Um, the fact that Iran wants to do that again, the fact that the European partners in that agreement have been hanging in there and saying repeatedly to the US, like, this is actually our best deal, our best way to avoid this situation unzipping, and particularly when you look at the ever-present threat of a nuclear-armed Israel, Mm. watching very closely and having a keen eye to their uh, perceived and real interest in the region. Um, So it's good to see, um, you know, it was I think it was Churchill, for all his wrongs, he did a few things right, and he did some things during the Second World War pretty very right, but one of his comments was, you know, George Orr is always better than war war. And mm-hmm. um, I'm in that camp very much. I think it's much better to be at the table working out complex situations and trying to find a balance that actually moves us away from another group of men with a red button 
into a place where we can try and de-escalate those tensions and lower that temperature. And I think the Iran nuclear agreement has been proven to have, to have done that when it was uh, when America was a signatory. And I hope, I really do hope that it, it gets there again. Look, just a quick follow-up question: How reliant is Iran on nuclear power for their domestic energy? Um, no, nah, not very. Okay. No, nah, not very. Um, it's uh, obviously, you know, it's got significant uh, oil reserves. Mm. Um, it, um, nuclear is is not a major player in Iran. Okay. Hmm. On, on a similar vein, Dave, uh, the first phone call, and it's the only one so far, between Biden and Putin since Biden took over, uh, they agreed at least not to, to extend the nuclear treaty, which means they don't proliferate their, their, their nuclear weapons. But they've got so many anyway, as China subsequently pointed out, um, that really it, it's a bit meaningless, isn't it, to say we're having a treaty when you've got thousands of weapons floating around? Yeah, I suppose it's, uh, I suppose it's uh, how you see the glass, you know, half full, half empty, Kevin. In, in one sense, you're absolutely right. There's 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world and 13,000 um, are um, held between Russia and the US. Um, so they're, they're overwhelmingly... They're, those two nations are overwhelmingly the world's nuclear weapons holders and, and threats. Um, yeah. Having said that, and this, this deal, the New START extension of the... The New START agreement, it sounds like you've gone down to Centrelink. The extension <laughs> of the New START agreement is actually really, is actually really, in my view, positive because it does two things. One is it's practically positive in the sense of um, it's sort of bookending that so it doesn't immediately get worse. Um, and that's a, that's a useful approach. If you've got a major problem, don't, a good start is to not make it worse. The second thing it's useful for is it actually is, um, again, reinforcing that there are multilateral and international mechanisms that you can take to restrict, constrain and shape. And that's important. Um, what it doesn't do is anywhere near enough. It, mm. it's, a, it's a constraint rather than a winding back. Um, we need to wind back and we need to move from the language of, of constraint and mitigation and all that sort of language, the language of um, non-proliferation, into the language of disarmament and abolition. But the fact that the two major nuclear states are A, talking, B, accepting that they have a responsibility that's global in impact by, by virtue of their vice, which is to possess such vast nuclear weapons, those things are positive. The fact that there's a sense that there, there are international instruments and possibility is also good because, you know, we're spending a lot of time, a lot of people are spending a lot of time and energy promoting an international instrument to hopefully leapfrog a lot of this stuff and get serious about abolition in the form of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So, you know, it's, it's at least, you know, maybe I'm, I don't think I'm naive. Well, I know I'm not naive. I don't think I'm sort of unrealistic. I think I've got a grounded optimism, a sort of cautious or, you know, reluctant confidence um, that we can, that we, like humans, made the nuclear threat, be it a leaking power plant, a, a waste dump in, you know, Indigenous First Nations land or nuclear weapons. We made those threats and we need to address them. And every time I see people trying to talk through difficult issues as opposed to just putting out a tweet and either ignoring them or exacerbating them, then I like to try and chuck my two bobs worth of energy in those who are doing something, even if it's not enough. And then what we need to do then is 
control the haemorrhage, that is all a range of nuclear risk, and then actively wind it back. And, you know, talking and international instruments, particularly the UN Treaty on Abolition, is, um, is a pathway for that. Well, this is city limits, Dave, so don't get too positive. <laughs> God's sake. But we, we're in different studios. But, Zeb, have you got something? I can't see you from here. But um, um, Well, uh, that was just reminding me of, I suppose, Australia's responsibility in this and the fact that we, um, we provide uranium um, to a lot of the rest of the world. And we're also coming up to the 10-year anniversary of the, um, the Fukushima reactor meltdown, um, which, you know, Australia was partly, um, I guess, responsible for just in the fact that they were providing uranium. So um, maybe that will start a conversation. I don't know whether uh, what the conversation is at, uh, at the level of um, extracting uranium in terms of both um, nuclear power and also nuclear weapons. Yes, that's a really, really good observation um, in, in a few ways. And one is um, that, that it is, you know, March 11 is 10 years since Fukushima. Um, it is quite extraordinary that in the shadow of Fukushima, we have in our national parliament this ridiculous push to for a greenfield start to embrace nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. It is, it's, it's an offensive non-recognition of... The, the very real and very continuing economic, human and environmental impact of Fukushima. And you're absolutely on the money to say Australia has a direct relationship and, and a related responsibility because it was it was confirmed by the head of the DFAT nuclear uh, safety unit, the D- Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Nuclear Safety Bureau, um, was confirmed in late... 2011, that not only had Australia been selling uranium to the corner-cutting TEPCO Tokyo Electric Power Corporation mm-hmm. who ran the plant, but it was actually an Australian fuel load um, that was in the plant at the time of the meltdowns there. Yeah. So when you hear Fukushima fallout or when you hear all water that's contaminated and might be pushed into the Pacific, um, like that started at an Australian uranium mine. So yeah. that should bring with it some consequence, some sense of responsibility, some looking at, at, at that sector. Unfortunately, um, that hasn't happened under any party um, since that time. We're still strongly pushing, you know, Australian Conservation Foundation, Friends of the Earth, many environment groups and peace and justice and solidarity groups are pushing for a review into Australia's sales and impacts and uh, how we make decisions and how we follow up and assure some degree of credibility in utilities we supply. All those sort of things, very reasonable, moderate, almost boring things, um, which are treated as if they're some sort of revolutionary ask. Um, but the good news, and this is the glass half full part, is that both the growth of renewables, um, the shrinkage of the nuclear sector, like at the start of this century, nuclear power was producing 20% of our world's electricity and renewables were producing 10 Now, today nuclear power is producing 9% and renewables are, pro- are producing 27 So, yeah. like, the arc has fundamentally changed and the cost curve fundamentally changed and social acceptance of one and social and the lack of social licence for another have changed. So Australia is now ripping and shipping less uranium than we have oh, for decades. And, you know, one of a good news story is that 
And, you know, um, some listeners will be well aware that on early this year, the Ranger Mine, Australia's longest uranium mine up in Kakadu, formally and finally closed. Mm-hmm. But there's no uranium mining anymore in Kakadu. It was meant to go to 2065, and it's over now. And there's no uranium mining in the Northern Territory. And it's only occurring at two sites in South Australia. There's proposals in, in Western Australia which are under active contest from Aboriginal people and environmentalists. Um, there are, there's no mining um, on the east coast, the eastern seaboard, at all. So it's only two deposits in South Australia. One's small and one's huge. The huge one is BHP um, Olympic Dam Project and uranium mm-hmm. is, a, is what's increasingly seen as a byproduct to the copper, but it's still significant. Yeah. So we, who have a third of the world's uranium, now only have two uranium mines. John Howard came into power, unbelievable to think, 25 years ago next month. And when he came into power, he said there will be 25 uranium mines in Australia. And 25 years later, we have two and we're on our way to one. And then we ring fence that one and we squeeze and constrain it. And I would like to think, and I don't think it's ridiculous optimism, I think it's the way it's actually trending, that in the next four to five years, that this country will cease being a provider of this very risky, very dangerous, very intergenerational threat mineral in the same way as we have extensive uh, rather asbestos reserves in Western Australia and made the social choice not to dig it up or export it. Um, I think we'll do the same over the next period of time with uranium and that will be a good day and that's what we're working for. Do we know what happened, speaking of Fukushima, with the recent disruption there where they had another earthquake, did they not, or whatever, um, in that area, which which could well have affected the, the, what's happening at the Fukushima plant? Yeah, good question again. I, I haven't seen great detail, but um, we're in... Um, we're in... I suppose it, it's, it's um, some comfort by not hearing, um, and I don't mean by the mainstream press, because as we all know, and as 3CR knows, um, we don't, there's lots we don't hear from the mainstream press, but we're in regular contact and particularly in the lead-up to the 10th, um, Kevin, with, with groups, activist groups and, and uh, groups that track Fukushima in Japan, and none of them put out a significant alert. They sort of breathed a sigh of relief. So I'm not sure of all the details. I'm sure there would have had to be some impact, but it didn't seem to be fundamental to the safety of the operation or the clean-up or the stability of the site. There is growing concern, obviously. There are... Um, You know, people might have seen recent ABC reports and there's growing concern about what is proposed for the treatment um, and ultimate management of vast volumes of contaminated water because there's two sets of water. There's groundwater that enters the site and comes in contact with with radioactive contamination from the the facility and from the core um, and that has to be captured and isolated. And then there's water still being used to cure, to cool fuel and for uh, maintenance and, and rehab and stabilisation activity. And all that water also then becomes contaminated and needs to be captured and isolated. So now they're at a point where they've got getting very close to full capacity to hold this stuff. And the debate in Japan now is what do we do? And some are wondering, is there, is there a sort of filtration or technical solution that can at least reduce the impact? Others are saying, look, it's too big. Let's just 
push it all into the Pacific and it'll dilute. Um, mm. And um, others are saying we need to find a terrestrial way to store this. It's a big issue and it's a big regional issue. In, in Korea, as you could imagine, there's a really big push against um, Japan dumping this into mm -hmm. the ocean. And in Japan, there are very many people, particularly like fishers and coastal communities, mm -hmm. who are deeply concerned about this. So Seb's earlier point about 10 years of Fukushima, one of the things that we would like to see domestically in Australia, we would like to see awareness and a discussion about what is our responsibility, cause and consequence of uranium. Mm -hmm. In the global picture, we want to add our voice and see um, a sense of the decisions that are made for the continuing rehabilitation. And remember, the pro-nuclear International Atomic Energy Agency, they said that Fukushima will require direct and continuing active intervention for four decades to stabilise the site. Now, we're into one decade. So mm -hmm. there's 30 years, not of threat, but 30 years of active money, people, technology, work on the ground, boots on the ground to, to manage Fukushima and try and contain the worst of the impacts. So we want to see the discussion in Japan to be around what is the absolute best technology and the absolute least worst damage and pathway rather than what's possible or what's expedient or what's cheap. I um, have just been told by our producer we have about five minutes left and any listeners that have just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits and we're joined by anti-nuclear campaigner Dave Sweeney and I can see Kevin holding up a piece of paper and <laughs> eagerly wanting to ask well, another question. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise we were so close to time. But <laughs> Dave, another area I know you're interested in, the, the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory, which is also near the MacArthur River mining area. Um, the, the federal government and the Northern Territory government are both pushing this very hard as a, a future of gas, and it's a it's a wonderful exploration area that we can exploit uh, and frack, in fact, and, and fracking will take place there. But there's massive opposition from local indigenous groups who say it's going to seriously affect their their land and their their cultural sites. So, do you know much about that? Yeah, that's um, that's well, you've said it. Kevin, that, that's it. There's a, there's a push from Canberra and Darwin um, that, you know, the same form of extractive economic development is the way forward. Um, the people who live on the country, who it is their country for tens of thousands of years, are like, you will kill our water, you will kill our country. We won't get any benefit. You'll promise the world and all you'll do is reduce it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. And you mentioned MacArthur River, and MacArthur River... Like, I know that's a project in a mine that has been, you know, under the forensic right. lens from you, and so it should be, you know. I just, it was described by some colleagues from the Northern Territory Environment Centre the other day to me as, the, you know, the dirtiest and worst mine in Australia. Um, it's a, a zinc-lead mine run by Glencore. It's about 70 k's from Borroloola in the Gulf Country in the Territory. And... Um, it is now the, the Northern Territory Environment Centre and a group of traditional owners of that country have taken the Northern Territory Government to court um, and that'll be a really interesting case to watch, Kevin, because the, 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 Northern, the, the Northern Territory Government unilaterally and without any consultation, it, it reduced by $100 million the rehabilitation fund that the company had to clean up that site. Mm. Now, that site is a massive mess. It's got a smoking mountain, literally, a smoking mountain of, of ore and stockpiles 
with sulphur dioxide smoke that periodically and routinely spontaneously can bust and has a fire. Um, they've diverted a river. There's massive acid mine draining. They're pulling out fish with lesions, and it's it's a nightmare, quite frankly. And they put in an independent monitor who said that it's not the, the environment regime is not the protections are not working. And instead of beefing it up and jerking the chain of the mining company, the Ghana government shortly after being re-elected, hands them back $100 million um, and says, there you go, I think your rehab plan's probably a bit too much and a bit hard for you in these difficult times. Have 100 mil back. What we're setting up is um, for country to be damaged, for those communities to be affected for, for many, many years to come and for the territory and ultimately the federal taxpayer, that's us and the listeners, to see... Um, money thrown at cleaning up a project that should never have gone ahead and sh- the clean-up should be absolutely the responsibility of the mining company. So that question of there being a, pol- a political obsession with a media release and a hard-hat announcement and cutting the tape and then forgetting what that means and what the continuing impacts up mm-hmm. and who... Who cleans up after the party? All right, Dave, we're going to have to wind up there. They even, of course, redirected the river against the wishes of the local people, but it's a, it's another story. We'll follow it up because um, it, it is looking serious and the government's pushing it, but the, the local community is, is very upset about it for sure, yeah. All right, Dave, look, thanks so much for your time today. Well, and, as uh, ever, so good to t- talk with you folks and, and hopefully speak again sometime soon. <laughs> okay, thanks, Dave. Thanks, and, Dave. Uh, thanks. Meg, thank um, Karina and Karina. all that. Um, everyone did an amazing job today. Karina pressing the buttons here live in the studio at 3CR. So exciting. I can hear Joe Toscano in the corridor waiting to come in and rant at you all about all kinds of things, public housing and anarchy and, and everything. So, um, you did it. You said live around. in the studio. We're not live. dead in the studio. No, I said we're... live to air. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk. let's take this offline. All right. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.